nickname is Papa Don. Um, <laughs> not just with my grandchildren, and my wife is Vovo Terry, because that's Portuguese for grandma. Um, but Papa Don is what everyone calls me. My employees, uh, a lot of the people that we know, so it's, it's stuck. So logically, I'm not going to go to grandpa or anything like that. But uh, thanks for letting me talk to you this morning. Um, I came in about a week and a half ago for some food shows and meetings and all. And I had given a, a sermon, a pastor friend of mine in the capital city of Maputo in Mozambique asked me to do a sermon because he was doing a whole uh, series on Exodus 3, 3 to 5. And so it's where Moses went to the burning bush and, and came into God's presence standing on holy ground. And he said to me, Don, your testimony is so much like this. And I had to like think about that for a while. But in developing a sermon, it really was where I've had these instances where I've been standing on holy ground and it's really changed my life, really affected me, to the point where anything that God asked me to do, I do. Or I believe that I do. Um, so I want to tell you about that this morning. First, I want to share that first. So it's when Moses, <clears throat> so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And we all know that story. We know that Moses was given his calling and everything. So this morning, I just kind of want to share with you what I feel standing on holy ground is from my testimony. <clears throat> and I believe it comes from, it means to become in God's presence through intimacy. <clears throat> it means surrendering your life, your plans, your everything. To give over your life to God to do as he desires. And that's what he was asking Moses to do. But more practically, it means to go beyond making Jesus your savior to making him your Lord as well. And so we all constantly saying, hey, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Okay? And the most important point here is about making God your Lord, not through intimidation or fear, but out of extreme love and adoration. And so the definition of Savior in the dictionary is one who saves rescues, delivers, or redeems from danger, death, or destruction. A deliverer, a redeemer. The definition of Lord is different. One who has authority, control, or power over others. A master, a chief, or ruler. Now being obedient to what God wants from you um, is key to having him be your Lord because he has control over you. So one of the things I did in my walk um, after I surrendered, and I'll tell you about that, was I picked up a book by Dwight Moody, one of his sermon books. It was actually a sermon given in the late 1800s where he said to the congregation, he said, you know, over my decades of preaching, there's one topic that you do not want to hear. It's obedience to God. And he said, I can preach about anything. But if I ever talk about being obedient to God, people meet me at the door going out and say, I don't want to hear about that anymore. 
because we all have our own plans. We all have our own desires. We all have things that we want to do. And we really don't want to hear from the Lord. And if you look at the Jewish people, they're like, hey, Moses, you can talk to God. You know, tell him what he wants from us. But there's a, a responsibility if you hear from God. When he asks you to do something, you can be obedient or disobedient. And so I'm going to share with you kind of my interaction with the Lord and what he asked me to do. So for 15 years, back when I was 29, I became a Christian over at the Hershey Free Church. And um, <clears throat> up until 44 years old, I was this typical Christian. I was at this church at the time, and I progressed in my walk while here. But I was falling short on account of myself. And my, val my salvation, it was my insurance policy, okay? I had a ticket to heaven that nobody could take from me. And the story of Jesus was all true because I read all the books, I read the Bible, you know, and I reasoned it to be true, and I believed. And I was a good, saved Christian. And I went to all the prayer breakfast meetings, I attended lots of Christian events, a lot of Promise Keepers events, for those of you who went to Promise Keepers as well. I taught parenting classes here at this church. I was being considered as an elder of the church. But I wasn't ready to make him master lord over my life. For that, I sat on the fence. Because I knew what God wanted me to do, but I liked my life in the world. My partying, my plans, my dreams. I liked me. And I realized the me part of Don Larson had to die so he could come alive within me. And that's dying to self. We all talk about dying to self, don't we? Um, but what I was missing was being touched by God, like Moses felt when he took off his sandals. He was in the presence of God. And once you experience God's presence, your life will never be the same. And it happened to me, and nothing was the same again. So I'm going to share with you what, how God brought me into his presence. Hey, these batteries. So I was doing well in life, driving down the road. And I liken it to being in your car and driving down the road, okay? I was driving the car. I was an executive for Hershey. I had a high-performance Porsche. I had a nice house with a pool. I had motorcycles, a hot air balloon. I flew every week, an RV. I was driving really well, and I was driving fast, but the road that the world lets you go down is not very colorful. The world fools you into thinking that their roads are amazing, and most people spend their life struggling to get down those roads, but they're really quite bland, and they certainly aren't fulfilling. Most rich people that I meet, they're not really happy. They're worried about their possessions and everything that they have. I was living for things. I was living for status, for money, and power. I love God, but I had another God too. God warns us about the dangers of money. And so, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you know the, all, all the other verses about rich men and things like that. God warns us about the dangers. All of us were searching in life. 
We want God's plan for our lives because God's plan are abundant. Okay? They're not worldly. They're abundant. It's not about money. Many people think abundance means riches and, and arrived and living the American dream. It, it's fulfillment. Fulfillment comes from being and doing what God created you to do. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. And this is why I'm, I'm going to concentrate on all the steps that led me to move to Mozambique, where I exchanged my will for his will. And I let him start driving the car. I went from the American dream to God's dream for me. Now, back in the early uh, 2000s, I hadn't yet chosen him as master over money. God was with me when I drove my car as my savior, and I didn't have him in the trunk, you know, for emergencies like many people do. He just sat in the back seat, okay? I was an executive for Hershey Chocolate. I was very successful. But God kept tapping me on the shoulder for years in the back seat, wanting me to let him drive the car. It was like a nagging thing. Tap, tap, tap. I turn around, shh. Hey, I got things under control. Thank you for blessing me. I'm doing great in life. Appreciate you in the car, Jesus. You know, he just, he had a plan for my life, but I wasn't listening to him unless it agreed with my plan. And then I came to a service at Mike. It was over at the Rutherford School. We passed out these little planks of wood with Matthew 6.20. He gave a sermon um, that was a tool that God used to nag me because that plank, my wife took a picture of that this morning. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I think, no, it was yesterday. And um, I have it on my, it's been on my wall of my office for probably 20 years now. And it continues to nag me. And what Matthew 6, 19 to 21 says is, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up yourselves for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And his challenge in that sermon was, are you building a mansion on earth or are you building a mansion in heaven? And um, I'm hoping that question will sink in to everyone here. And it took a while for me. See, I really liked God back then. And I did want a closer relationship with him. But I didn't let him drive the car. I left Hershey in 2005 and this area, the Harrisburg area, to build a factory near Philadelphia for some foreign investors. And <clears throat> God wanted me to surrender then. I felt it. But instead, I chose the world. So I went there, I built this, the largest cocoa processing plant in the world. I was the CEO. We started up at 100 million in sales. But it went against God's plan for me. He really wanted to start driving the car before I took the job. And boy, I love the new car that the world was offering. So I chose the new car. I got in, I drove, and uh, it, the car was this new job. It was everything that the world desired. Success, status, power, significant money. I got into that nicer car, the job, 
and it was a tougher drive. So tough that I let God move up into the passenger seat. In Mozambique, we drive on the right-hand side of the car. So I said, passenger seat. I got to tell you, the passenger seat here. Okay. Um, You know, and and he was now my co-pilot. And I found this picture on the internet, you know. Jesus is my co-pilot. That's a famous praise, right? He's not your co-pilot. He should be your pilot. Okay? And it's a subtlety here. But he should be in control. He should be the pilot. He should really be in the back seat, enjoying the ride. So he was now my co-pilot. I had tough things that were happening at the factory. You know, there were tough unions coming in. I was dealing with the government on environmental stuff. The investors were asking me to do illegal things. And I didn't do the illegal things. And I stopped the investors from doing them. I stood my ground, and I did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it was really tough. I needed God in the front seat with me because my journey was tough. And I began to realize that the drives were always going to be tough from now on. Why? Because God wanted to drive the car. And I wanted him in the car with me. But I just wanted him in the back seat or beside. You know, let, me, let me drive that car. God can bring trials into your life to get you to be obedient. And in 2007, the factory was so successful that the investors uh, sold it without me knowing to the largest chocolate maker in the world out, out of Switzerland. They didn't need a new CEO, so I wasn't moving to Switzerland. I got called the day before and said, hey, you did a great job, could you go? And so that same week, um, and by the way, they tried to take my ownership away. I did everything so incredible for them, but they didn't care. They cared about money. They even tried at the end to take the money away from me, the little bit based on what they had made. So that same week, we sold the factory, and there wasn't a need for a CEO. I was called into a large food company, Campbell Soup, which was right across from Philadelphia in, in Camden. And I met with the executives all day. I didn't have a resume. I just went in and talked to It was a long day of like five or six executives. At the end of the day, the senior v- HR person came in and said, I don't know what you did, but they said, create a senior VP position for this guy for excellence. You know, I'm like, that sounds good, you know, for excellence. It's just making Campbell's a better place, you know, doing all the things that I did at Hershey. I had a different job at Hershey every year, kind of going wherever there was problems and, and solving the problems. That was actually a strong movement by the Lord to prepare me for the role that he had for me in the future. So all of you, if you think that you're wasting your life or not on, no, you're not. God's got you doing things, and it's a key to your future, okay? Many of you are already in your giftings and callings. But they said to me, it's going to take a few months to get this position created. Can you take a few months off? Of which I said, hey, I'd love to do that. And I chose that time to just go deep in the Lord and just pray, go into seclusion, things like that. Spent time with Jesus. And it was a time that I finally decided to get off the fence. I made the most critical choice in my life. I surrendered my life to the Lord. And I knew salvation was easy, of having him in the car with you. It's much more difficult to surrender and let him take control of your life and drive the car for you. 
And so I made this commitment. I went down to the shore, middle of winter, Summers Point. I did some writing exercise. I actually wrote a surrender note saying the first half of my life has been amazing. I give the second half of my life to you. As I progress into the second half of my life, I want to enter into a battle as a warrior for God. He has a plan for me, and I submit myself to be at his service. I want my earthly life to reflect the love that I have for him. I want him to call me home with heartfelt appreciation for a job well done. As I was writing all this stuff, I felt God in the room. It's the first time that I've tangibly felt his presence. And I'm like, oof. So I wrote my epitaph that night as well. And um, I put that on a uh, tombstone. I'm telling my, my wife and my kids, I want this on my tombstone. Because God and I were in the same room one night. I wrote this, and I think he's going to honor it. So I'm, I'm excited that he was able. I spent a lot of time. I said, Lord, can I put great-grandfather? And it happened. So you'll understand why that's important to me, given what I'm doing in Mozambique. But... When my grandchildren, who are four and two, start having kids is when the time starts for me, I think, of when I might pass through to the Lord. Um, But the main thing was the last. His conviction was to be good soil, which multiplied the seed planted by God in him 100 times. And God loves when you're formal, not with people around, but you and him set giving proclamations, giving, uh, surrendering, and things like that. And I felt him in the room. I sensed his presence. It was as if I was standing or sitting on holy ground, actually, during the time. It was a very eye-open experience. So the next five months, I searched for what God wanted me to do, and he taught me patience, waiting, more waiting, testing too, a lot of testing, to see if I was actually willing to surrender my life. And actually, it was two months of, of that because I'd waited three months to surrender. Two months later is when Campbell Soup called me. I had been in, started in seminary. I was doing missions projects. But then Campbell's call, it was five months it took for them to create the position. They'd completed their promise. They created a senior VP position, which would quickly turn, they said, into a, a job on the CEO staff. It was for a lot of money. I prayed, and I turned it down. It just didn't feel right. And when your spirit is troubling you, it's usually a sign from God that you're not to go that direction. So I was fearful of the Lord. And when you have a calling and you don't follow it, I knew that God could make it painful. He made it painful with my last job. And when you think about Jonah, when he didn't do what God asked him to do, he got swallowed by a fish and spit up where he was supposed to go. You know, and I, I understand that those things can happen. You know, so I turned it down. The food company, the senior executives called me in for lunch. They told me about all the things they wanted me to do, of which I responded and said, well, you might not want to do that. You might want to do this instead. You know, and I gave them advice. And they kind of looked at each other like, who is this guy? But one of the food executives said, how much money is it going to take Don Larson to join us? And I replied, it's not about the money. I want to help people. I didn't say I want to be a pastor, because they would have laughed me out of the room probably. Uh, At that time, I was in seminary. I thought I'd be pastoring a church. But um, it was one of my first tests. 
and I had stepped into the Jordan River. Whoop. So I'd stepped into the Jordan River, and it pleased God. It was the first of many tests to see if I was really interested in making that commitment of surrendering. You know that money is one of Satan's best weapons. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, for longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The food company executive said, how much money will it take Don Larson to join us? Now, does that sound like something natural to you? The devil gave me his best shot. The enticement of money is his best weapon. It's riches, fame, power. Just beware of Satan's tactics. Jesus was aware. In, uh, in Matthew 4, 8 to 10, Right after Jesus finished up his 40-day fast, the devil came to him. And he said, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now some people in my life said, this high-paying job must be from God, providing in abundant ways. And I have another way to interpret it. For me, I knew it was an attempt to draw me away from my calling, my destiny, and my legacy. I didn't know what God wanted me to do at that time, but I chose to go another way. And this time I decided to take a road less traveled, the right road. And so I started into conclusion I did four trips over four months, each for three days in solitude in the mountains, waterfalls, everything, to different places for different reasons. And God taught me to hear his voice, to follow his ways, to fall in love with him and all of his creation. My family thought I was going crazy. I was having the time of my life. I was acting like a little child. I was in wonder of everything. I was hearing his voice. There's two places that I would really hear his voice. It was waking up in the morning before I fully woke up. I would get things and write them down. And then in the shower, when the water is coming over, it quiets your mind. There's a, there is something to people who train about hearing God's voice. They talk about the alpha, delta, beta, and, and the brain waves, and God allowing, being able to get through to you, okay, over yourself and, and other things. But things got really wild, and I was loving every moment of it. I would get up in the morning, hear about things, write them down. They would transpire throughout the day. It was just a wonderful way to live. Now, when I'm in business and everything, it's hard to quiet my mind to hear him. But he gets through, just not like it was during this intimate time. I have some reasons, I think, for that. But in total, I spent 18 months in intimacy with the Lord. And it was glorious. That golden, uh, that holy ground, everyone was pressuring me to do something, Don. My wife pleaded with me to open a kingdom business because she was getting barraged at school by her colleagues, her family, friends, everything. Like, Don's out there talking to animals. He's talking with the birds. You need to get him back in work because he's going to go crazy. <laughs> I was having a great time. I would love to go back to that 
I was more sane than ever at that point in time. And I was acting like a child, which, what does the scripture ask you to do? It asks you to be like a child, be innocent, believe in what he's saying and doing for you. So I reluctantly agreed. My wife pleaded me to open this kingdom business with a guy out in Kentucky. I said, okay, I'll go see him. Um, I agreed, I feeling that I should still be waiting on the Lord. I was actually feeling a bit disobedient. But I decided to go on the way to Kentucky, which from here is straight kind of west. I went down to South Carolina first. Then I was going to go out to Kentucky to a, a three-day spiritual warfare conference at a church down in South Carolina. At the end of this particular conference, I'm in worship. It's a three-day conference. It's Saturday night. I've got jeans and a T-shirt on, sneakers. And I'm worshiping, and this woman taps me on the shoulder, an older woman, who had a prophetic ministry all her life. She's a Messianic Jew. I know her pretty well now. Um, but she comes and she says, hey, I think I have a word for the Lord for you. And I'm like, really? That's interesting, you know. And so I had my phone at the time. I have recorded like over 100 people coming up to me who said, I have a word from the Lord. This was the first one. She talked for like a half hour. But she talked to me all about my brother and what's happening, and it was so wild what the Lord wanted me to speak into my brother's life because he was at a very very low point and said, you need to stop talking about what you're doing. You're bringing him lower and lower with all your success and everything. And this, you know, you're married, you have a great job, all this stuff, and it's just sinking him. He had just, I didn't know it, but he had a DUI. He was at home when I brought my portion to his driveway to step on my new RV because we were taking the RV around the country. I thought he was at work and he called me. He's like, that's your car, you know. Just story after story of God intervening for the benefit of people. And this woman was telling me about this. I'm like, okay, that's great. I will do that. And then she said, okay, God's got something for you now, directly. And she said, you're to wait. I see you in a car. I'm getting this vision of you in a car. And there's five or six roads, and you don't know which road to go down. And God said he's taken down all the road signs because he doesn't want you going on intellect. He wants to show you which road. So go back home and wait. And on the recording, I sound like an idiot. I'm like, I told my wife that I was to wait. You know, I mean, I'm sitting there, and I hate to listen to it because I was so relieved. And then when I went home, I'm like, I'm to wait. You know? But the woman says to me, in three weeks from today, you're going to get partial direction from God. And in three months, you're going to get full direction from God. And so I circled those days on the calendar, and I waited, and three weeks came. And I was preparing to go on a whitewater rafting trip the day of three weeks with 15 high-power dads and their sons out in a Ohio pile with my, uh, my wife's, uh, the, the kids and my wife where she worked at the Delaware County Christian School. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to get partial direction. It's going to be one of these 15 men I'm going to meet and be part. So I'm prepared. Better get it ready, you know. And so I step in the shower and I'm thinking I got to have um, sleeping bags, flashlight, got to have matches, got to make sure I have extra socks. And then all of a sudden, almost audibly, I get 
build food factories in third world nations to bring lasting economic transformation and name it Sunshine. And I'm like, what? I get out and I write it down. I'm like, boy, I hope I wasn't hearing that right. Please, Lord, let these men come through on the weekend and nothing happen. So I came back and I started to say, okay, if God wants me to build food factories in third world nations, how will I do it? How would God want to run a business? And so it's, I'd give a reverse tide, 90% of the profits I'd give back to take care of the poor, the widowed, and the orphan. I'd create food products that were excellent, that we'd sell all over the world, bring those uh, things back. I would have it as a model of integrity to stop corruption and exploitation and everything. So I, I built out this model. And then over the coming weeks, I sent it out to various people. And we were taking the RV around the country. I started getting calls. And the government of Tanzania wanted to pay my way first class for me, for me to, to be there. And they toured me all over the country. I met with all the leaders of the country. And I gave them advice, you know, which was misguided advice that they had gotten. And the president said, I just want someone who's in the food industry that can give me the real picture of what we should do. So I shared all this. It was exactly three months from the day I was in front of the leadership of the country. And they basically gave me a standing ovation. It was at a hotel conference room. And I'm like, oh my gosh. God's asking me to come to Africa to build food factories in the food industry. Two things I said I would never do again. And he's asking me to do that. And that's my calling. So when you're faced with that type of clear direction from the Lord, with other people coming up and reaffirming what you know what the Lord's asking you, you have a choice. Are you obedient or are you disobedient? So we sold everything. We severed all of our friendships. Well, we didn't sever them, but we kept two of our kids who were in high school, last senior in high school. One was at Gordon College. They stayed in the U.S. My wife and my 13-year-old son went to a place we never knew. Um, we, we went to Mozambique and we're, we're running a food factory in an act of obedience. That's what obedience looked like. And more importantly, that's what love looked like. A love that comes from experiencing the presence of the Lord and making a proclamation. You are my Lord, I will be obedient. And over that time before moving to Africa, I received lots of guidance from God through prayer in writing the business model, which I've termed, the sun, I've termed it the sunshine approach business model. It's a good quadruple bottom line business. Instead of just financial, there's environmental, there's social, which is charity, like soup kitchens for Campbell's Soup and things. It's when you give things. But the key component of our business model is transformational, and that's changing people's lives permanently, bringing them out of poverty, transforming the way that they do things. So I want to tell you one good story, kind of about how God communicates. It was how I shifted from Tanzania to Mozambique. <clears throat> so I was having, I got contacted by this investor from London. He's a prominent investor, does a lot of work in Africa. He called me and said, hey, I want, I'm flying into New York. Can I take a train down and just talk to you? I said, sure. I picked him out. We went to a, a restaurant in Philly. And he just grilled me for three hours, 
just with question upon question upon question based on my experience. And I had a very rich level of experience. So he gave me a headache. I had a piercing headache, and I'm sitting there. And the Holy Spirit says to me, and it's this thought that comes into your mind. I heard, in 10 seconds, this guy's going to say something that's not him. It's me. So I'm like, you know, God knows your thoughts. So I don't know if I, my count was right. But I started counting down in my mind, 10, nine, eight, seven. And, you know, God's sitting there like, you're not counting right, but I'll go with your zero instead of mine. Because right at zero, this guy, super prominent, he stops what he's saying mid-sentence, and he cocks his head. Like when you have a dog whistle, and the dog will hear it and go like that, even though you can't. Well, he, he stops, and he goes, you know, you should really consider Mozambique before you buy that factory lot in Tanzania. And I just smile, and I said, hmm, maybe I will, you know. I got out of there, and I said to a guy that was working with me, I said, hey, look up Mozambique, see if they have cashews and everything, because I had everything planned for, for Tanzania. And they did. So I bought a ticket to go to Mozambique. I had been planning on going to, Mozamb to Tanzania. I said, I'll buy a ticket. If nothing happens, I'll just swing. Tanzania's right next door. I'll just get a plane and go over to Tanzania and continue on. But um, when I was there, I bought a ticket to spend 20 days in Mozambique. I had no hotel arrangements, no transportation arrangements, no meeting set up, but I trust in the Lord. That was my journal entry. My plane takes off in four days when I wrote that. And so nine days later, I'm in Mozambique and I journal the following. It's been four days since I arrived in Mozambique, and God has clearly arrived before me as a pillar on cloud to open the doors. I have had four days of meetings, dinners, sites, and fact-finding that go so far beyond my expectations that all I feel like doing at times is dropping to my knees and weeping in gratitude. Now, I prepared for this flight not knowing what to expect, where I would stay, what contacts I would have, how I would get around, whether I'd be effective, and all these things have been carefully orchestrated to perfection. That was the end of my journal entry. Two days later, I'm in the truck with the former foreign minister, and, and he was the health minister as well, one of the most revered uh, men in Mozambique. Knows Tony Blair, knew um, Nelson Mandela, said he was going to introduce me to Nelson Mandela. He was just blown away with my model. But he took me to his cashew farm, the President Shizano's cashew farm, President Shizano's brother's cashew factory, then I went to President the president's family compound, where I met the president's brother and his mother. Oh, I missed a slide there. So this is his 95-year-old mother, who's out. She has a really nice home. It's out in the middle of the bush. But this was the hut in the back where she was sorting beans with her friends, sitting on the ground. So she pulled me down, and she said, come to my country and help it. She said that in Shangan had to be translated to me. But I sat there, and I felt like I was on holy ground, that God was right there with me, talking through this woman. And that was kind of a fitting touch to the 20-day trip, where nothing was planned by, we, my, by me, and I just allowed the Lord to orchestrate the plan. Most of my days, I let the, orchest the Lord orchestrate my plan, because it's so much better than any plans that I can make. And I do make plans, and I think they're the wrong plans. And he just says, okay, when you're ready to come back and let me drive, we'll do that. 
And that's where things progress in a much better way. The Lord has an abundant life for each of us if we surrender the wheel to him. And that was over 12 years ago, and the orchestration for the Lord, it continues. There are many lessons along the way to make you more like Jesus. There's a lot of trials and tribulations to refine you, to be more like Jesus. And so I try my best to find out what God wants from me, and it's usually to give up something that he doesn't like within me, and he wants to transition me more to how he can use me better. And so the road he takes you down can be dangerous, but it's thrilling, and it's safe to be in his car, though. And so on July 29, 2011, my wife, my then 13-year-old son, and William, and I stepped onto Mozambique soil without plans to ever return home. We're on the road that the Lord has for us. My two children stayed in the U.S. My daughter, who's here, works for the company. My son there works for the company. My wife works for the company as a director of social impact. But soon it will be 11 years in Mozambique. We came to build food factories to bring lasting economic transformation, and it's called the Sunshine Nut Company. You can get the cashews. We're in Whole Foods. We're in Wegmans. We're in uh, Giant. We're in a lot of stores on Amazon. I've done three years of QVC. I'm going to start doing QVC television right from Mozambique selling from there, which is a, an unusual thing for them, but we worked it out. We do business Godways. We're taking care of orphans and widows and subsistence farmers. We give away 90% of our profits, um, a reverse tithe to take care of our workers and the farming communities and orphans. We have um, orphan homes around uh, the factory. The first orphan home was with Cecilia Madalena and Antonio in 2014. It was eight years ago. We got a call from one of our employees saying there's three kids out on the street. Their father had died in a tragic accident. Their mother was so distraught that she, killed, she hung herself. Before she hung herself, she said, she got her hair done by her friend, and she said, hey, um, I'm going to kill myself. And the friend said, well, what are you going to do with the kids? What's going to happen to the kids? And she said, well, Cecilia's pretty. She can make it as a prostitute. And the other two kids will be picked up somewhere. And she actually went through with it. And the children found her. They cut her down. They got in trouble with the police for interfering with the crime or a, a, the, the, the scene. And then she, they got kicked out by the landlord who said, hey, get out of here. This is my house. You guys can't pay. So they're out on the street, and we meet them. My wife met them first. And she said, God's got a plan for you. And she said to Cecilia, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Cecilia said, I want to be a lawyer. I want to help people who can't help themselves. And Cecilia is a powerhouse. We put her in one of the best schools, Christian private school. Um, she graduated a couple years ago. Um, only 1% of the population of the kids graduate from high school. So she was part of that 1%. She's now studying law, second year's law. She'll be going to Europe, congregating with a bunch of law students from around the world to, to learn law better. And I just can't wait to see what she becomes. You know, she's going to be a powerhouse lawyer, and she wants to work for the, for the Sunshine Approach Foundation. Little Antonio, he could be a doc, he could be anything. Anytime anyone asks, he says, I want to work with Papa Don at the factory. 
I can't wait to see what he's going to do in the factory because it'll be God, I think, that's moving forward in their lives, creating the destiny and a legacy for them. And uh, so um, what we did lately, now we're getting into the subsistence farming. I've wanted to do this the day I moved there 10 years ago. And God kept shouting, saying, it's not time, it's not time. I tried three or four times in different parts of the country, got the governors involved, everything ready to go, and nothing happened. So I got the go-ahead last year, and people have been coming into my life that are perfect to do this, and we're doing it in the south of the country. And just in December, I get a visit by Total Energies. So Total Energies is one of the biggest energy companies in the world. They're bigger, I think, than ExxonMobil. They're all over Europe. They're all over, you know, you go into Cambodia, you go into India, and they've got, in the airport, total energies, you know, they're, they're advertising everywhere. And they came to me at the factory, and they said, we want you to do your Project Sunshine up north, where the Islamic insurgency is. This, four years ago, ISIS came into the country. They talked to a lot of the local youth who were doing nothing, no opportunity and everything, into kind of disrupting. They, uh, they've killed 4,000 people in the villages, a lot of them beheaded. Um, 800,000 people have been displaced, all in the Cavadogada region, the province. And they're like, please come and doing your project in the conflict regions. Of which I said, you know, we're doing it in the south. Once we prove it out in the south where it's safe, then I'll go up north. And they said, well, we'll pay for everything in the south, we'll pay for everything in the north if you come and do it. And so it's when I sat and I prayed, and I, uh, I got an okay. So I said, okay, we'll come up. And not knowing how I would possibly succeed, it's hardened Muslim communities. They're fishermen, they're farmers, but they're subsistence farmers. Mozambique, 80% of the population of like 30 million people are subsistence, excuse me, are farmers, they say. But then they say 99.9% .9 of those farmers are subsistence farmers, meaning they're just growing food to survive. They're not selling it. They might be bartering, hey, two tomatoes for an onion or whatever with their neighbors. And they, they trade at the Baraka for oil and things. But no money really ever changes hands. So they make an average income of $33 per year is what their income is. This Project Sunshine that we're doing, and with with uh, Total Energy's help, we'll be, we'll be hiring 2,000 people, planting over 500,000 cashew trees just this year. It's the first year, five years we'll be doing this. But what we do is we take, in a village, we reassign uninhabited land and give each family two hectares. With that two hectares, we provide all the cashew trees, we provide water wells on site, we provide all the training, we provide beehives, everything. And that two hectares will allow each family, when we put a mini factory in the village, for them to take and use the equipment to take the cashews out of their shell, they end up earning about $5,000, which is 144 times what their current income is. And it's for people who live in stick walls, grass roofs, mud floors, that's a significant amount of money for them. And so... I'm coming out with a co-branded concept. On our bags, there'll be QR codes to show 
the transformation. These are actual pictures up above of the types of homes. The second in is the school, which is a stick school. They don't have the books that the government should provide them. There's no health care, and there's no employment. So we're looking to tell great stories of transformation from the sale of the cashew packages of the retailers which have adopted the villages. We'll have about 40 villages, hoping to get 40 retailers. A couple of them are already interested. And so some great things will happen. Um, but as I go around the area, I'm led by a group of soldiers. You see on the left, there's a truck with a bunch of soldiers in it. And then we go. And I always have a special ops guy beside me driving the truck. So this is not an easy thing, but I know I'm safe because it's what God has asked me to do. And when I speak to the village leaders, I have soldiers guarding for ambushes and everything. And so this is the type of thing that the Lord is asking me to do. And I don't know where I'm going on this road that he's got me on, but it's a pretty exciting road. You know, it's dangerous, yes. There's a lot of trials, yes. There's complications, yes, because the enemy is trying to stop this. But I like the idea of being God's warrior, as I wrote in my surrender, being on his side and fighting the good fight. So this is all about demonstrating God's love to a, a Muslim community. And they say, God, or they say, Total and Sunshine must love us so much for, best, for them to be doing this for us. And so this is just some people we hired. This was two weeks ago I took this picture. Last week, the guy, the smaller guy in the white shirt on the left died in his sleep. I'm like, why did Ansa, why did Ansa die? And they said he died of a broken heart because a year ago, his two daughters were taken by the insurgents when they came through and they killed a bunch of people and all. They took a lot of the women as sex slaves and things like that. He died of a broken heart because he didn't know where his daughters were or whether they were alive, and he couldn't handle that anymore. It's the same thing with Nchamu then. They said, well, Nchamu, the carpenter, his wife was taken at the same time. He doesn't know whether she's alive, where she's at, or anything. And he just goes on with life. Most of the people we're interacting with there have had just horrendous circumstances. But God's asking us to break through and provide hope and opportunity, a better life, all to demonstrate not anything but God's love for his creation. And so that's what we're doing. So God changed me from being a businessman into a spiritual warrior. Okay, I'm doing the same things I was. All that experience I'm now putting to use for what God's asked me to do. And I'm asking you, where is God in your car? As you drive down the road, is he driving the car? Or is he still on the side of the road? If he's still on the side of the road, stop, pick him up, pray the prayer of salvation. At least get him in the trunk as an insurance policy, you know, to get to heaven. But then... Ask him to be more and more in your life. You get to the point where a lot of you might have already asked him to drive the car. And you're leading this incredible life of not really knowing where you're going, but being happy and excited that he's driving. And you get to experience the brilliance and the wonder 
of how he created you and what he has for you. At the end of the life, to be greeted by Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to relive all these things. I think it was you, Mike, that also said, Jesus wipes away your tears. And I think Pastor Mike said, I think that's, he shows you what you could have been and what God had for you. But you never accepted it. You lived your own life and your cry because you realize all that God had in store for you if you would have only listened for him. And I just want to listen as closely as I can and do as much as I can because I know the rewards in heaven will be a gigantic mansion, whether it's physical or not. That's where I want to put my emphasis and not on earthly possessions. So I, it's your choice what decision in life you make. But choose wisely because an eternity waits for you. Thank you. Let me pray for you, Don. Uh, thank you for sharing for all three services, man. <laughs> Lord God, thank you for Don and Terry, uh, Lord, for their friendship over all these years, and Lord, for uh, the example uh, that he and Terry and the kids have uh, demonstrated of being obedient to you. And, and Lord, your, your calling uh, really is never easy. And uh, Lord, that may be a calling to just be the best mom that we could be or the best dad that we could be or, uh, Lord, uh, where you just completely transform uh, what we thought was going to happen and uh, you got us another way. And, and, Lord, I pray for Don and Terry that you would strengthen them, that you would protect them. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give him long life where uh, on that gravestone it would be able to say great-grandfather. And, uh, Lord, we pray for the people of Mozambique. Uh, pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, the work that uh, you were doing through Don and others would, uh, Lord, give them a, a better quality of life, but more than anything, that, Lord, they might see your son, Jesus Christ, and they too might uh, confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that you are God and that you uh, have been raised from the dead. And now, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, these gifts that we're about to receive through this offering. Father, thank you for those who give uh, here in person, who give online, who give through the mail. And Lord, I pray also and thank you for those who desire to give but are struggling to figure out how. Lord, would you make a way for them? Lord, you are good. Help our church to be wise stewards of these resources. Thank you for allowing us uh, to invest in the work that Don and Terry are doing. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen.